2: This is the John Fugelsang Podcast This is Sirius XM Progress I'm John Fugelsang. Welcome to Channel 127 I hope you've had a great day Folks, we've been through a lot this week And there's one thing I can tell you It has not been a great week For comedy But we are so grateful for all the fantastic guests We have had on the show Covering all the atrocities in the Middle East From Rula Jabril Uh, who was so wonderful speaking about the Palestinian suffering, to former Israel ambassador to the U.S., Michael Oren, who was on our show the other night. We're going to continue that tonight with some really great guests. Uh, David Rothkopf will be here. He has some great new pieces in the Daily Beast all about the various atrocities that have gone on. We'll also be joined um, later in the show by a very special guest. I read this guy's thread on Twitter, and I was just blown away by it the other day. You know, Tangle News is a terrific site that has conservative and progressive voices, but their founder, Ike Saul, wrote a thread on his perspective as a Jewish person on both uh, the Palestinian and the Israeli suffering. And it's just dynamite. We're not going to try to make it funny, but we are going to try to bring points of view you won't necessarily hear on the mainstream news. Chris Household is our executive producer. He's running this thing out of South Carolina. The great Thea Harper is running this thing out of the Brooklyn studios. And I come to you from Manhattan. It's been crazy. There's so much to get to tonight. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken landed in Israel to meet with Netanyahu and talk with victims to shore up further American support. And... Netanyahu's office has released a set of very graphic photos of babies that were mutilated and murdered by Hamas in the invasion. That's in response to all the confusion and disinformation online and the deep fake photos regarding the extent of the atrocity. Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have both released statements today begging Israeli officials to abide by international law and cease the collective punishment and starvation. Of Gazan citizens. And the U.S. and Qatar have agreed to halt the release of $6 billion in seized oil profits to Iran amid speculation of its involvement in the Hamas Israel conflict. So, once again, all of your right wing friends saying Joe Biden gave Iran $6 $6 billion of our tax money, uh, actually, no. It was Iran's money. It was always Iran's money. They didn't get a dollar of it, it was all sitting at a bank in Qatar. And now, They won't be getting any. Also, Senator Robert Menendez has been hit with yet another indictment. This guy uh, as an unregistered agent of a foreign government, a.k.a. Egypt, he was head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee while being paid off the books (laughs) by a foreign dictatorship. It's kind of beautiful. And seven million Americans have received the updated COVID booster. So that should keep us all safe. Tomorrow night on the show, I'm very pleased to say that we'll be broadcasting from Los Angeles and we will bring you our brand new interview with Ken Burns, who has made one of the best films of the year and even one of the best Ken Burns films ever made, The American Buffalo. I have never watched a Ken Burns movie that took me on so dramatic an emotional roller coaster. This is a film that will infuriate and horrify you. And we'll fill you with inspiration. It's uh, deeply moving work, and we're really glad that Ken Burns is uh, coming back to our show yet again. Also, there'll be a new episode of Theoretically Speaking by the great Thea Harper tomorrow night on the show. And uh, we'll be broadcasting live from L.A., so lots to have fun with. Let's talk about the House of Representatives. Um, It's only right now we're broadcasting about 24 hours after Steve Scalise finally clinched the nomination to be speaker. And boy... Wasn't it exciting? They finally picked their guy yesterday and it wasn't Jim Jordan. It was a huge repudiation of Donald Trump. Pretty clear sign that they never would have voted for Donald Trump if he'd actually run for speaker. And I was saying last night, you know, in spite of the incredible baggage Steve Scalise has, in other words, saying he was David Duke without the baggage, you know, they, they, he did it. I mean, in the race of David Duke without the baggage versus the wrestler molester protector, it was Steve Scalise. Steve Scalise. And I pointed out last night that, you know, Steve Scalise is a white supremacist, uh, anti-equal pay for women. He voted against the Violence Against Women Act. He's opposed to anything that helps LGBT people. He was pro-guns for the mentally ill. He voted to make it easier for mentally ill people to get guns and then was shot by a mentally ill person who never should have had an assault-style weapon. And his life was saved by Special Agent Crystal Greiner, a black gay woman who's married to a woman. I love that story because it proves that Donald Trump has always been wrong. America is already great. So, you know, I thought, all right, well, Steve Scalise, he'll be good for comedy. I mean, he's very evil and at the same time, uh, less clownish than Jim Jordan. And I was actually kind of worried. I've said for a long time, Scalise, as the majority whip, has got a lot of experience with gathering votes. And he's probably going to be a better fundraiser than Jim Jordan. He's much more formidable an opponent for the Democrats. So... That's where we left it yesterday. And it wasn't looking good. And not just because Steve Scalise is so toxic, the real housewives could inject him into their foreheads if they can't find Botox. You know, Scalise hated McCarthy. Again, these guys hate each other so much they could both sing lead in the Eagles. But he backed McCarthy's speakership through that eight and a half months he was in the speaker's speed. And a lot of McCarthy's friends were kind of wary. Of his longtime rival taking over the conference, and they were kind of uh, turned off by how quickly Scalise jumped in to take the job. Chip Roy was on Glenn Beck's radio show. I know, aren't you sorry you missed that? What a summit. But he was saying a lot of members are concerned that Scalise wasn't up for the job because he is recovering from cancer. And he said he's committed to helping Jim Jordan, who lost, still get the votes to lead. Chip Roy said we need a trajectory change. Uh, he, He talked about the next man up mentality. And he called for a speaker who's not really of the swamp. Not of the swamp? So Steve Scalise wasn't racist enough? And then I heard uh, Keith Self, Texas Republican. He tweeted out, while I had hoped to support the Republican conference nominee for speaker, it has become evident that all the agreements and rules with the former speaker are null and void. Therefore, I will be casting my vote on the House floor for Jim Jordan. I was like, wow, you know, I would check my phone throughout the day and think, oh, Scalise, not having a good time, but they picked you, right? Then Freedom Caucus leader Scott Perry tweeted out earlier today, no matter what happens, I will never vote for the status quo. Uh, Again, Steve Scalise is as evil as they come, but not evil enough. And Kevin McCarthy was on ABC News this morning, and he was kind of mocking him, saying he's got a big hill to climb. And he was hinting that Scalise had overstated How much support he had. Kevin McCarthy said, well, he told a lot of people he'd be at 150 and he wasn't there. A lot of Republicans were all day giving anonymous interviews, saying that they didn't think Scalise would ever get to the 217 votes he needed. And they were worried about it. But, uh, you know, they can't be that disorganized, right? (laughs) So Scalise had a Republican conference meeting today to try to stop the bleeding. And it didn't work too well. I want to play you a clip of Congressman Ro Khanna, Democrat, eventing to Sirius XM POTUS host Laura Coates about the gridlock and infighting that is currently keeping the House without a speaker for, what, over a week now? Here's Ro Khanna.
3: I don't think a few people should hold the speaker hostage, but I also believe that there should be some rules changes in the House, which allow any member to bring up bills, which uh, are popular and have overwhelming bipartisan support, which ban members from trading stock, which ban members from becoming lobbyists, which ban members from getting packet lobbyist money. And I put this political reform plan and some of the folks on the right now have embraced some of the provisions and are trying to get their leadership to adopt it. And those things I, I support.
2: Right. I mean, today, almost three dozen Republicans came out and said no. It doesn't matter if he got the nomination we will not vote for Steve Scalise at the same time look at the Democrats Hakeem Jeffries has unanimous support in his caucus they're united it is the Republicans once again who are in disarray Republicans once again showing they can't govern they can't govern themselves we thought this whole Congress was going to be all about the Republicans slowing down the government because they hate Democrats so much folks they're going to shut down the government because they hate each other And Jim Jordan fans still think that Look the other way, Jim could somehow Get some support and do it Even though he lost But wow, it's not getting better And a lot of people were saying Scalise has to go on the floor Fight it out in public That's what McCarthy did He came on the floor, humiliated himself 15 votes For his part, Congressman George Santos said Steve Scalise never did anything to help him So why should he help Steve Scalise? And it's kind of brilliant and he's right. In a cult of selfishness that is all about selling selfishness as a virtue to selfish voters, why should we be surprised when they turn on each other? It's truly sad to see two men of such honor embattled like this.
3: Yeah, it's never Scalise. At, at this point, You, you're, we're going to have to find someone else in leadership that comes forward that's going to be a compromise candidate. But as for me, it's never it's for Scalise. No, it's not because he didn't call me. It's because if you're in leadership... There's 222 members of your party, 221 now. You talk to everybody. I've reached out numerous times to, me- to Congressman Scalise, and me reaching out and asking him for guidance in his leadership and him not reaching back out, that's a dereliction
2: of his duty as a leader. So I'm not voting for somebody who lacks <laughs> fundamental leadership skills.
3: I don't know. I don't How care, it.
2: That is the uh, multiple indictments. <laughs> Congressman George. Santos talking about leadership ability, you know, uh, the Republicans were allowing some of their radicals to put a white supremacist on the House floor for speaker. And I thought, go ahead and do it. Right. Right. Wouldn't it be ironic? Because if Scalise couldn't get the votes, it would be because he wasn't white supremacist enough for the white supremacists already in the Congress. And again, make no mistake. Steve Scalise is a racist. He opposed making Martin Luther King Day a state holiday up until last year, Robert E. Lee Day and Confederate Memorial Day were state holidays. As a member of Congress, he opposed naming a a post after Judge Lionel Collins, who was a civil rights pioneer from Jefferson Parish in his home state of Louisiana and his voting record. I mean, he, he voted against designating Martin Luther King Day already a federal holiday as a state holiday and he's used racist dog whistles his entire career talking about bankrupting business owners to try to campaign against it (laughs) he's done it so many times And, and by the way back in the day when he called himself david duke without the baggage he was talking to a white supremacist conference in his state that's why he said it he was friends with kenny knight who managed david duke's campaign and when they first asked him, but Lamar White was the journalist. When he first asked him about this, Scalise's office denied he'd ever spoken to it. So then they found a bunch of archive posts on the white supremacist website Stormfront that thanked Scalise for attending and had details of his remarks because they liked his speech so much. So not only did he speak to a white supremacist conference, he lied to the press that he had done it. I thought this is the perfect candidate for Speaker of the House. Please. Nominate this guy. Please make him your speaker. If it's it's going to be some awful white guy who wants more trickle-down economics and thinks Donald Trump is just peachy, then fine. Go with him. Well, guys, (laughs) you probably know what happened already. Steve Scalise announced late this afternoon that he will no longer seek the gavel because he has realized he has a pretty much insurmountable vote shortage. He did win the majority of votes yesterday and the internal GOP ballot, but it was not enough. He had too much resistance. So now we're back to square one. There's a war going on in Israel. You have a Democratic president they're accusing of not caring about Israel, who wants to send a lot of aid to Israel, and we can't advance an aid package without a Speaker of the House. And the Republicans can't find a Speaker of the House because they all hate each other that much. This is what Republicans voted for. And you know, it's kind of funny to me, because you've got the perfect guy right there. You've got a Republican in the caucus... Who is the ideal leader who speaks to the values of the party, who represents the ethics of the party, someone who deserves to be the face of the party. And that's George Santos. Guys, I can find no better representative for what the party of Lincoln has disintegrated into. They're not even the party of Quayle. than George Santos. And as you could hear from that clip, even when you can't see his face, his face is punchable. We now are back to square one. Ten days later have no idea who the next Speaker of the House will be. Five Republicans could cross over and it'd be Hakeem Jeffries. Most likely, the Democrats will try to find five sane Republicans, that is to say, five Republicans from Districts Joe Biden won, who are somewhat malleable, who might be able somehow to make a deal. <laughs> Meanwhile, Donald Trump just complimented Hamas and mocked the Israeli government and the army. He did that because Netanyahu praised Joe Biden. So right away... While Israel is still mopping up the blood, Donald Trump mocked the Israeli government. Try to imagine what would happen if Barack Obama mocked the Israeli government after this terrorist attack. Well, Trump can do it, and his numbers go up because the Republican base are as fraudulent as the Republican leaders. They are in a cult, and they don't care or believe anything unless the cult leader tells them how to believe. It's going to be messy. We want to know what you guys think. We are at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. Let's go to Sean in California. Sean, thank you so much for your patience on hold. You're on SiriusXM.
3: Hey, brother. Great intro. You know, um, regarding the house thing, so I am not one of those people that thinks we need to, like, you know, go overboard in helping them um, from their own destruction. Hey, Correct. look, if, if they cannot get a fucking speaker with their own votes and they want our, you know, help, then, yeah, come on over. And, and what do you have to offer the American people? So I, I don't want it. This is the negotiation. Don't say what do you have to offer the Democratic Party. Say, what do you have to offer the American people? And let <laughs> us know, and maybe we'll help you out. But... They're so dysfunctional and they're so sad. A- and it is embarrassing to listen to these fools, you know, um, have no clue about anything, you know, but maybe if they're so smart, their their strategy is, you know, to cause so much chaos that all the money people leave the Republican Party and right. all the people that care about some basic, just basic, you know, um, fundamental you know, pass some bills so, you know, we don't have chaos all the time. But let's be real. You know, the Republican Party has been nothing but the party of, of manufacturing crisis for so yes. long. I mean, they didn't they didn't believe Sandy Hook happened. If I heard a cri- if I ever meet someone who says, that those people were crisis actors. Yeah, you better be a MMA, you know, Well,
2: most, most Republicans acknowledge Sandy Hook happened. You're confusing them with Alex Jones. The problem was, after Sandy Hook happened, they had a tiny little reform bill to have greater background checks that 90% of Americans supported, and the Republicans filibustered even getting to have a vote on it. And you'd think that That's that would true. be doom for them, mm-hmm. but you know, like it always is, when, when there's high turnout, Democrats win. When there's low turnout, Republicans win.
3: And, and that's absolutely on our, we as, as the voters, normal patriotic Americans, need to take the bull by the horns and understand the consequences. Because right now we are seeing when worldwide conflicts happen, that's a consequence. And also our domestic policies, those are serious consequences. You want them to mess with your pocketbook, the Republicans will mess with your pocketbook. They'll take money out of your pocket. And by the way, one last thing, how in the hell is your leader, your grand cult leader, Donald bin Laden, who says he's worth billions of dollars? Why is he asking you for money?
2: Uh, Yeah, you think? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) what kind of billionaire needs money? Um and again we already know that but but I don't mind that because keep in mind Donald Trump's Save America Pack, that's where all the right wing folks are donating. They're not donating to the RNC anymore. The Republican right. Party is going broke in some states because people are giving all their money to Donald Trump and we know for a fact this is not an opinion that Donald Trump is raiding that campaign fund to pay his many, many, many defense attorneys.
3: Hello. And he'll stiff a bunch of those as well and pocket as much as he can and wait for the consequences later.
2: This is the way. This is the way. You got it, man. (laughs) Hey, Sean, thank you so much for the call. It's great to hear from you. We got to hit a break. When we return, Mr. David Rothkoff rejoins our show. He has been writing some of the best commentary on the situation in Israel and Gaza, and we're thrilled to have him back. Don't go away. We're at 866-997-4748.
4: Freaker or wherever
3: you get your podcast on because you know I love it when you do
2: welcome back allow me to quote my next guest Standing by Israel in the wake of this past weekend's horrific attacks was the right thing for the Biden administration to do. Hamas committed massive, appalling crimes against humanity that require a resolute and unflinching response. However, whether America's ultimate goal is greater security for the people of Israel, peace and stability in the region or justice for the people of Palestine, it is essential that our support for Israel is not perceived to be a blank check by the Netanyahu government. I am so thrilled to have David Rothkopf back on our show, not just because he's one of the best writers about the political system we live in right now, but because his recent columns and appearances about the tragedies in Gaza and Israel have been some of the most trenchant criticism we've heard. He is CEO of the Rothkopf Group, a media company that produces podcasts, including Deep State Radio, which he hosts. He's the author of many books, including Running the World, The Inside Story of the National Security Council and the Architects of American Power, and Traitor, A History of Betraying America from Benjamin. Dick Arnold to Donald Trump. His book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation is one of the smartest and most inspiring books about the Trump years. And it's out now. Professor Rothkopf, welcome back to SiriusXM. It's a pleasure to see you, John. Thank you, you, sir. I loved your column. It's dangerous for the U.S. to give Israel a blank check to assault Gaza. You know, I've been thinking all week, hasn't we heard this line for 20 years that the reason people are supposed to support Netanyahu is because he's the one who will keep Israel safe? It reminded me of after 9-11 when Bush ran for reelection and folks were coming out saying Bush kept us safe. I-, I don't really understand these rationales anymore. It's been dispiriting to see so many people trying to capitalize off this tragedy to see Netanyahu distract from his corruption and trying to shake up the judiciary. Donald Trump using it to distract from his many criminal trials. Putin using it to distract from his genocide and the Republicans in the House using it to distract from their total inability to govern. Let's start with uh, Netanyahu. What to you are the dangers of a very eager America giving him a blank check?
4: Well, I don't think the United States wants to give him a blank check. I think Joe Biden, in his speech, which was an excellent speech, uh, and followed, I think, I think half the people in Israel watched the speech, and the entire spectrum in Israeli politics backed it. I think Biden was very clear. He said, "We back Israel, but we, you know, also uh, insist that what." Uh, uh, their acts of self-defense that they're entitled to must do is is stay within the bounds of international law. Um, I think the Israelis um, on the right said, well, we can embrace this And we can we see this enthusiastic support and we see that Biden really means it viscerally. Um, And and we're going to be able to go a little further and it'll be politically untenable in the United States to criticize us for overdoing it. And, you know, I think, you know, given what Israel's been through, there are a lot of people who don't think it would be overdoing it, frankly. I'll be quite honest with you, if if uh, Israel managed to go in and eliminate every member of Hamas, I wouldn't object to that. I don't think anybody should shed a tear for them. They're terrorists. Um, But having said that, it's how you do it. And if you do it in a way that causes enormous collateral damage, Mm -hmm. um, that matters if. Palestinian babies and Palestinian mothers and and grandmothers and and other innocents um, suffer or are killed. Uh, That doesn't make up for it only compounds the crimes that took place exactly. on October seventh. Uh, furthermore, it doesn't make Israel safer. Uh, you, you were talking about a lot of these arguments that don't work. They're, you know, the Netanyahu argument was we're gonna be tough on the Palestinians, we're gonna take away their settlements, we're gonna build big strong walls, we're gonna threaten them, we're gonna come down on them hard, and that'll make us safe. And then this happened. Uh, yeah. the reality is that um uh overly aggressive uh uh fundamentally uh, uh uh anti um uh you know sort of international standards of decency policies have made israel less safe and if israel exactly. goes in now and you know, commits acts that that alienate the Palestinian people more and more. They won't eliminate Hamas. They'll create new terrorists. And this cycle exactly. will go on and on. Uh, and, you know, it's one of the things I said in that article, you know, retribution is not a strategy. It has never worked. The only way to achieve peace, is to undo the damage that Netanyahu and others did when they undermined the more rational groups in Palestinian politics and promoted Hamas because they thought by having an extremist group ahead of the Palestinians, that it would push people more to supporting them. And what we need is a political solution. That's the only way to actually have lasting peace there. And it's a long way off, and it's not going to happen this week, and there's a lot of bitterness and rightly felt bitterness. But I think people in the United States, people in the international community have to send a strong message to, to the Israelis that further atrocities in exchange for atrocities will not stand. We won't support it. And that what we all should be doing is keeping our eye on the end game. What our objective is. How do we make Israel safer? How do we produce a more just society? And and we have to sort of take a step out of, you know, these
2: policies that clearly do not work. And yet, if the Netanyahu's and Hamas's stay in power, that can't happen. I find myself quoting The Godfather a lot this week, David, uh, the phrase wartime consigliere. Because if peace did happen, there'd be no place for a Netanyahu. There'd be no place for a Hamas. Their power depends on fear. Their power depends on terror and on the threat of violence. It's how they justify their policies. And you nail this when you point out how Netanyahu has said he'd rather have Hamas in charge among the Palestinians because their radical policies justify his radical policies.
4: Yeah, and I you know one of the things I said in that that earlier article I did this week that you that you quoted is I don't think Benjamin Netanyahu know, is going to survive this. I mm. don't think the Hamas leadership is going to survive this. Now that creates an opportunity to put in better, more moderate governments. You know, you you went through a great litany of the things that are happening this week and how they all sort of fit into each other and how a lot of cynical political opportunists are trying to use uh, foreign tragedies or foreign difficulties to advance their goals. There's a flip side to some of these things. There's nothing good about what happened on October 7th. Uh, It's as ghastly as anything we've seen since the Holocaust or ISIS or the killing fields in Cambodia or the slaughter that took place in Central Africa in the late 90s. But having said that, Netanyahu is going to be gone before this is over. And Netanyahu's judicial reforms, his undermining of democracy, that's dead. This this interim government has said, it you know, you will not be able to pass any new legislation. I am sure that that is not going to proceed. Um, that's that's a good thing. Hamas is not going to survive this. That's a good thing. You know, if we can ensure that some more rational voice uh, on behalf of the Palestinians is elevated. And you know, also people revealed themselves. I mean, I thought one of the most astonishing things, and I can't even believe I'm saying this, given the the person I'm speaking about of this week, was Donald Trump coming out last night and saying, you know, Hezbollah's smart. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, it's you know, literally yep. this guy touches every third rail in politics, and and his poll numbers go up.
2: How do, and, how do you explain course, that? And he, and he said it. Because Netanyahu praised Biden and thanked him. That's all it took. That's all it took for him to take the side of terrorists over over Israel. Well, the interesting thing about, you know, uh, the the former
4: president is he has no ideology except Mm -hmm. his ego. He, He doesn't believe in any political value except the interests of donald trump he is the most petty human being that has ever existed Uh, and that combined with the fact that he's kind of an ignoramus and doesn't really understand anything makes every speech about how he's feeling about how he's doing at that moment Uh, but still you know he's also a guy who has praised putin praised xi jinping praised kim jong-un praised the saudis praised, um, you know, Hezbollah now, uh, praised white supremacists. I mean, at a certain point, you've just got to stop and say, you know, are people supporting him in spite of the fact that he has, you know, he's he's embraced all these people or because of it, because the latter is much scarier.
2: You know, another interesting point, though, and you point this out in your in your most recent piece is. There could be the most dreadful option possible. The Bin Laden scenario, which Bin Laden did that worked by having Israel overreact to these attacks, as we did invading the wrong countries after 9-11, can fuel terrorist recruitment across the Middle East and even drive other nations like Lebanon or Iran into this conflict. And it seems like that desperate gambit may have been the despicable logic guiding uh, Hamas's choice, that maybe this will lead to a regional war and cause a lot of life. It seems like everyone who can benefit from chaos is very excited about what's coming.
4: You know, I'm tempted. I will go ahead and, 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 and make a broad statement about everything in international politics. And that is there are always two groups. There is a group that benefits from perpetuating the current system. And there is a group that only benefits from tearing down the current system. And it's those groups that benefit from tearing it down uh, that are the most dangerous, even, even when the systems are somewhat flawed. Putin can't work within the international system. He wants to tear it down. ISIS couldn't work within the international system. They want to tear it down. Hamas can't work within it. They want to tear it down. The Republican Party, the MAGA movement in the United States, does not want to work within institutions that contain constitutional constraints. So they want to tear it down. And, you know, these are the people that that threaten us at the moment. And this is something common to all of them. But the reason terrorists do what you just described is because it works. And I wrote a column in October something like two weeks after September 11th in 2001, um, in which I said. I fear the United States is going to overreact and that we are going to get trapped into a long cycle, a little bit like the Intifada in Israel, whereby overreacting, um, it triggers the birth of more terrorist groups, and that triggers our overreaction again and so forth. That's exactly what happened. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying I'm particularly, you know, clairvoyant. That's what always happens. Mm -hmm. And that's why the Intifada worked against the Israelis. And that's why these Hamas attacks um, for all the horror associated with them uh, may achieve their goal. You know, Netanyahu will be out. The Palestinian issue will be back center stage. Uh, Israel may in the next couple of weeks overreach. Uh, and produce more international pressure against them, um, and that's why they do it because they think it. Yeah. They th- you know it's not irrational; it's a
2: calculation. Well, you say in the piece, our failure, we as Americans, to send a clear message to the Israelis that annexing more territory, deepening apartheid. And committing or tolerating crimes against Palestinians, especially our failure to follow such actions with concrete steps like withholding aid and material support, has actually contributed to the conflagration that has been sparked in Israel and Gaza this week. I couldn't agree more, sir, but but, but why do you think it is? I mean, Bill Clinton really tried. Bill Clinton had the Oslo Accords. I always was convinced that Clinton really wanted to. And they made some real agreements. It got Rabin killed by his own people. Uh, It was Yasser Arafat who, who nixed the deal, and Yasser Arafat looks like Gandhi compared to Hamas. But why have so many presidents of both parties been so willing to just kick the can down the road? Well,
4: I think it's because there is no easy solution and there is no easy solution because the people of the region have rejected the solutions that have been placed before them, uh, whether it was the initial, you know, uh, uh, accords of uh, or the initial plans uh, in 1947, 48, when Israel was created, um, or, you know, whether it was the, the various peace accords that have been handed down and ultimately rejected over time. That said, you know our interests in this region have evolved during the cold war it was super important to us as a way of counterbalancing the russians and it was super important to us because we needed the oil uh, the cold war is over we're now the world's number one producer of energy our mm-hmm. interests have sort of shifted in this regard uh, and i think that's why the biden administration wanted to shift attention away from the middle east to the indo-pacific region yeah. um but you know, it's you know, you quote the Godfather and the line in the Godfather that is, you know, relevant here is, you know, the you know, the the, the line that Michael says where he's I wanted to get out, but it keeps drawing me back in. Yeah. And and that's you know, that's that's what happens here. Um and I and I'm afraid, you know, because of what's happened here, we are gonna once again be spending far too much of our time and resources trying to work out something where the people, the parties the deal we want to work out, aren't sure they want the deal.
2: Yeah. Where do you see Vladimir Putin in all of this, sir? He has, of course, given his talking points to our Republican Party to blame Joe Biden for uh, this atrocity. But where, where do you see him in all of this?
4: Well, I mean, Putin's been playing both sides of this. And the Israelis and Netanyahu was a complete sucker. Remember when when Ukraine started Netanyahu didn't immediately respond to U.S. and Western requests to help Ukraine. That's he right. he stayed close to Putin because he wanted to have that card to play. And also because he and Putin and Trump and Modi and Orbán are part of this club of uh, sort of anti-democratic, pro-authoritarian, ethno nationalists. Bolsonaro was another one. But of course, what Putin has just done is pulled the rug out from under him. Putin is very close. The Russians are actually, you know, existentially dependent on the Iranians at the moment for the provision of weapons and other things um, in uh, uh, Ukraine. Uh, the Russians are are very close and pro- have propped up the Syrian Assad regime um, mm-hmm. and uh, between Iran and, uh, you know, and Russia, you know, that's that's how you fund Hamas, Iran does it, but, you know, Russia's on their side. And so I think, you know, you can see them as being not constructive in all of this. And uh, frankly, you know, what what could Putin like more than to take a U.S. Congress that was already because of the Republicans in the Putin caucus moving away from support for Ukraine and create another issue that those people can say, no, we've got to do this. We're not going to do Ukraine. And so, you know, Vladimir yep. Putin is sitting there going, this is right. great. You know, right. this is great. It helps Iran, it helps me, it helps, you know, uh, distract from what's going on in Ukraine. I hope this goes
2: on a long long time. And it helps the Ayatollahs because it gives them maybe a, a, a little more time before their people overthrow them as they will. The majority of the population of Iran is under age 50, and these extreme conservative religious are not going to be able to rule that country forever
4: no and you know there there is a, within iran a very large educated cosmopolitan population that hates the way the country is being run and at some point that's going to be uh that's going to be overthrown uh but you know the iranians looked at at the situation where israel was going to kind of deal with saudi with the united states and that that was going to sort of upset the geopolitical balance in the region and they also said we don't want to go forward with that let's try to distract from that um and they you know they they have supported this um we'll see what they do in 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 lebanon with hezbollah which is another one of their proxy groups uh we'll see whether this war expands the u.s sent uh carrier battle group there the gerald R. Ford carrier battle group uh, precisely to send a message to iran not to hamas right That's you right know, this was That's to right. say let's not expand this war exactly right um and You know, that's that's why, you know, I would hope, you know, that the administration will keep its arms around this. I have a lot of faith in them. Secretary Blinken has made a good trip there uh, today. Secretary Austin is going there. I think tomorrow the president has been extremely engaged. But nonetheless, because we don't control all the moving parts, I look at the next two or three weeks as being very dangerous. Possible Israeli overreach possible expansion in the north with hezbollah possible you know if there's more proof that the iranians are behind this what will the israelis do to punish the iranians Mm -hmm. how will this spread out of control and you know regional wars start more often than not by accident rather than out of plan and this is
2: one of those dangerous moments where a lot of accidents could happen Professor, while I still have you in our final minutes, I'd like to talk to you about a column you published last week in the Daily Beast um, about chaos closer to home, which seems rather innocent by comparison. But the piece of broken Congress is what MAGA always wanted, where you say what happened in the House of Representatives this past week as Matt Gaetz led the anarcho moronic wing of the GOP. Very nice to unseat Speaker of the House was a continuation of the MAGA riot Donald Trump incited. The goal was the same to stop the government from functioning. This piece just became a lot more timely this evening, with Steve Scalise dropping out of the race. Um, Besides the fact that we are seeing that Republicans are incapable of even governing themselves, what are the lessons to be drawn from here, and will Americans take note of it?
4: Well, you know, I think Americans are a little bit numb to it, and that's dangerous, because these people do want to tear down the U.S. government, and they do want to end democracy in the United States as we know it, and they are gaining enough strength in key parts of the united states that they could win in 2024 and i got to tell you you know you say if it seems like a lesser problem if the united states ceases to be a functioning democracy mm-hmm. it's it's game over for a lot of things in the world it is hugely destabilizing event for the entire planet earth so you know and if the united states is taken over by a bunch of people that don't believe in uh, uh climate change that don't believe in uh international treaties that don't believe in NATO that don't uh, think that we need to defend our allies that don't believe in promoting democracy it'll be it'll be disastrous so that's the global ramifications of it the the domestic ramifications are for forty years ever since Ronald Reagan said I'm here from the government and I'm here to help as a joke. Uh, The Republican Party has increasingly been behind efforts to tear it down. There have been five government shutdowns in the past 20 years. They've all been run by the Republicans. Uh, The Republicans, whether it's the Tea Party Republicans or the Freedom Caucus Republicans, whether it's Sarah Palin or Newt Gingrich or Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. They are all about tearing it down because Their sponsors like that, their donors like it, because that means smaller government, lower taxes Um, and their supporters like it because they're just angry at the world. And this, you know, they they they're against the establishment and this allows them to do that, Uh, you know, and, um, you know, also weaker federal government allows state governments a bigger role. And that means that in those red states, you'll have very extreme uh, uh, interpretations of what The rights of of people individuals are and it'll be harder to vote and so forth and so uh this is a 40-year project uh and we need to see it that way because we're not going to stop it overnight with one vote or getting rid of donald trump we we, there is a party in the united states that is dedicated to dismantling our system
2: and stopping the government from governing you're right and they keep saying that they hate government what they really hate is democracy. Um, who would have thought that Steve Scalise would be not white supremacist enough for this caucus? Do you have any theories in our final minute about who might somehow get this nomination? Scalise lasted like one quarter of a Scaramucci here. I I, I,
4: I, I think he lasted one eleventh of a Scaramucci. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, since he was just in a candidate for a day, uh, yes. I don't know because I don't think the Republican Party at this moment is actually a party. I think it's at least two parties and possibly three parties yeah. um, it's you know the republican party who are kind of right-wing spineless Trump followers there's the mega party who mm-hmm. are extremists bomb throwers want to shut down the whole government Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene Lauren yeah. Boebert um, and and those th- those characters um, and then, you know, there, there, there may be some that are worse, you know, the sort of what I could call the frothing at the mouth loon party. Um, and and and, you know, who are, you know, uh, Paul Gosar and some of those characters who are actual Nazis and mm-hmm. who are so stupid, they have no idea what they're doing. And, and the point is, they can't you know, we, we don't have a parliamentary system. So they can't ally themselves with somebody else to, you right. know, form a coalition, uh, and maybe that's what's going to happen. You know, the, the Democrats have 213 solid votes. You need 200 mm, yeah. se- or 212 solid votes. They need 217 to win. So, um, uh, you know, could five Republicans support Hakeem Jeffries? Yes. Mm-hmm. Could some number of Democrats line up? Uh, you know, they people Republicans say, yeah, the Democrats have got to help us, but the question is. OK, you want us to help you? Please tell us one reasonable Republican
2: who supports the Constitution, who we can depend on. Just That's one. It. David Rothkopf, it's always a great joy to have you. Everyone subscribe to Deep State Radio. Please come back and see us again very soon and have a great evening, sir. Thanks a lot. John. Thank you. We'll be right back with your calls. This is progress. Figure Lending, LLC, DBA Figure. Equal Opportunity Lender. NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Let me quote my next guest. I don't believe Hamas is killing Israelis to liberate themselves, nor do I believe they are doing it to make peace. They're doing this because they represent the devil on the shoulder. Of every oppressed Palestinian who has lost someone in this conflict, they're doing this because they want vengeance. They are evening the score and acting on the worst of our human impulses to respond to blood with blood, an inclination that is easy to give into after what their people have endured. It should not be hard to understand their logic. It is only hard to accept that humans are capable of being driven to this. Not defending Hamas is a very low bar to clear. Please clear it. In a week that is crying out for nuance on this issue, I am so pleased to welcome our next guest, Tangle News is an independent, nonpartisan politics newsletter delivered straight to your inbox Monday through Friday. And Isaac Saul of Tangle News had a posting this week on Twitter that has been shared by so many people. And yes, we still call it Twitter here. Um, that is uh, of uncommon grace and eloquence. And I wanted to get him on to share his thoughts with all of you right now uh, from Tangled News. Isaac Saul, welcome. Thank you for joining us.
5: Thank you so much for having me, John. a uh, big fan of the show and really appreciative of you inviting me out tonight.
2: Well, I I love what you wrote, and from the Jewish perspective you share, I think it's really, really priceless. Um, let me just begin by asking you: How did you find out about the atrocity that was committed last weekend, and and how has the week evolved for you?
5: Yeah, wow! Uh, you're actually the first person who's asked me that. Uh,
2: well, they you don't know, give this job I... to chimps, Isaac. They don't give this job to <laughs> chimps. I'll tell you. But...
5: I uh, I I woke up on Saturday morning, and I, I typically take a break from the news on Shabbat. Actually, um, yeah. I'm, I'm one of the uh, you know semi observant Jews out there, and one of my Shabbat practices is to get offline and try to get off my phone and get away from the news. As a politics reporter, I cherish that break and. Uh, I have a very good friend who knows that about me and is also a news junkie. And I woke up on Saturday morning and he had basically texted me and said, Hey, like I I know you're not online, but I just want to let you know that this is happening. And I had a moment where I, you know, the, the fork in the road of, do I want to dive into this right now and see what he's talking about and try and understand what's going on or not. And, um, then the text just started pouring in and I quickly realized this was not, you know, your typical spate of violence or, you know, the, the usual kind of exchange of rocket fire or something. It was clearly a very different moment. So, um, yeah, that was how I found out and you know, I, I got online and started reading the news and, um, yeah, horrific and shocking and terrifying and, you know, you just you think about all the the people you know and have met over the years who who might be in danger, and of course, immediately for me, also thought you know this is I, I knew that the retaliation we're we're watching now from Israel in Gaza was coming, and I knew it was uh, a sign of a
2: lot of bloodshed to come,
5: which is is
2: terrifying. You've lived in Israel. And you write in your piece, I went to those parties in the desert, I rubbed shoulders with Israelis and Arabs and Jews and Muslims, I could have easily accepted an invitation to some concert near Siderat and gone without a care, only to be indiscriminately slaughtered, or perhaps worse, taken hostage and tortured. When people ask me, you know, what side are you on? I, I, I always try to say I'm on the side of everybody who's trying to solve these problems without violence. That's my tribe. But you begin the piece by people asking you if you're pro-Israel. And, and you know, you point out that being pro-Israel or being pro-Palestine or being a Zionist, it's never that simple, is it?
5: No, it's not. I mean, look, <laughs> it, I think one of the things that people miss in this conversation often is Israelis and Arabs and Muslims and Jews, they live shoulder to shoulder in Israel. And you know, the the occupied territories in the, the West Bank and Gaza, which is under a blockade. You know, they create walls between those communities, but they're interacting on a daily basis. They're you know, I lived in East Jerusalem. I lived in a yeshiva in and in a religious boys school in East Jerusalem. And I was interacting with Arabs and Muslims every single day in Israel. And That experience, I think, for a lot of people on the ground changes things both, you know, it it makes moments like this more painful. And it also adds a lot more nuance to the situation. And I have personally never felt like saying I was pro-Israel or pro-Palestine or a Zionist or anti-Zionist or whatever captured my view. I mean, I think like you I want to see a world where you know the the walls are torn down and people can live together in peace. And as Pollyannish as that might sound, I actually believe that there is a good deal of people, you know, in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Israel, in America, certainly, who, agree. who want agree. that. You know, they they want that. They really do.
2: What might that look like, Isaac? Would that would that to you include uh, an independent Palestinian state that? has control of their own borders
5: it's interesting i mean i you know in speaking to a lot of palestinians and palestinian americans i find that you know despite what you read in the news a lot of what i see is or a lot of what i hear is an interest in a in a one-state solution you know it's giving palestinians and arabs full rights in israel and uh you know withdrawing from the west bank and Tearing down the blockade and and living as as one country, obviously, <laughs> it, from from the Israeli and Jewish perspective, that's a complicated trade off because Israel is a democracy and um, you know Jews could quickly become a minority and they fear that reality because it could change the government and change the the current Jewish homeland that they have. So that makes that solution complicated i think a two state solution you know from my perspective does not yeah. seem realistic anymore because of everything that we've seen and and you know the arab leaders have rejected it for for years i mean that's just the reality of the situation there have been opportunities for it that's and right. they don't seem interested in it um there's also the three state solution which is Indeed. you know the it, it, a non uh, uh, two two nations that are or a single nation that's separated by Israel in the middle, you know, with West Bank and Gaza on opposite sides of the country together for a lot of reasons is actually not a very realistic solution. And no. so some people suggest that we should make Gaza and the West Bank and Israel three independent states because right now they have independent leadership and you know there's no contiguous border there. And uh, to me that makes a lot of sense, but it requires the the Arab and Palestinian leadership giving up some of the land in Israel and around Jerusalem that they obviously want for the same reason a lot of Jews do. So this is why it's such an intractable problem. There's, there's upsides and
2: downsides to all of these issues. You know, we, we began this week trying to reckon with this tragedy and atrocity and capture all the suffering, all the different injustices, all the historical injustices all the preventable tragedies, all the hypocrisies. And I realized that we were doing this on Monday, which was uh, Indigenous Peoples Day. And it's fair to say that one can describe both Palestinians and Israelis as indigenous peoples of the region, right? I mean, that's fair, isn't it?
5: Yeah, I mean, look, (laughs) again, what makes this so complicated is and, and I talked to many Zionist Jews about this reality is if, if you want to talk about Israel as the the Jewish homeland, which is how I think about it in many contexts, you have to accept the fact that Jews and Muslims are cousins. I mean, they are, you know, going back 1500 years, they've, they've lived and fought over the same land. They've lived together peacefully on the same land. And You know, as a Jew, certainly I'm prone to have the quibbles about, you know, Judaism predating Islam and all these things. But absolutely. The reality is Arabs lived in that region, you know, just as long as Jews did and when the Romans did. And we've all been fighting over this same strip of land for 2000 years. And, you know, (laughs) Arabs lived for 500 years in you know, under the Ottoman Empire in this land and for five centuries with a minority Jewish population that they live side by side with, with very little conflict. And so, you know, when you look at the events of the 20th century or the late 19th century and the rise of the Zionist movement and the interests of the Jews in returning to this land, I don't think it's hard to understand why something like that would create tension and why maybe many people in the Arab world would reject the notion that they need to give up their land to the Jews in the wake of World War II. But, you know, it was, it was something that the global community thought was necessary. And it was something at the time that I think there was a path for it to be beneficial, both for the Arab world and the Jewish world. I mean, a lot of Jews were buying up land that was unoccupied and rural in Israel and building it up and developing it. And a lot of Arabs were coming back to the land because they recognized this development was happening and the land was prospering. And it also created a bunch of tension and a bunch of fighting over, again, this land that people have been going back and forth fighting over for for centuries. So, you know, from my perspective, uh, I, I think The Jews have a perfectly reasonable claim to say that they are the indigenous people of this land. But if you want to do that, you know, you you just end up going tit for tat, tit for tat through a dozen major wars and changes of power and conflict. And I don't think the end result is particularly productive, you know, to solve the the issues that we're facing today in 2023.
2: And I I, I know that there's got to be a lot of progressive or moderate or even secular Palestinians and Israelis who are just tired of the way things have been their entire lives. Let me let me quote you again from your excellent piece. You write it isn't a fair fight and it hasn't been for decades because Israel's government is rich and resourceful, has the backing of the U.S. and most of Europe and has an incredibly powerful military. At the same time, Israeli leadership has made technological and military advancements that have further tipped those scales, all while the Israeli government has helped create the resource thin open air prison. Of two million arabs in gaza now i'm sure you got pushback for that but i <laughs> i would bet a lot of younger people agreed with you
5: yeah no i mean look the i i think the pushback that you get from writing sentences like that which is a lot of what i got is you know that the arab world has in many ways abandoned the palestinian project and, you yeah. know, Egypt has a blockade. They, they're they not currently letting Palestinians flee this bombardment from Israel into their country. And for a lot of Zionists or a lot of people who are pro-Israel or even, you know, some people kind of towards the center, they view that as a, you know, a, a, a reality check that even the Arab world is not particularly keen on absorbing a bunch of refugees or you know potentially Hamas into their country and all these things my big issue with that and the big problem I have with that framework is again something i wrote in this piece which is that half of the 2 million people in gaza are under the age of 19 i mean yeah. they're children yeah. we we can't we like we can't lose sight of the fact that right now there is a generation coming up that has known nothing but hamas rule israeli bombings and the blockade and they're living in a country with 50 percent unemployment rate they're they're living mostly in very very challenging conditions constant instability poor education the education they gets often you know teaching them to hate jews to hate israel
2: exactly and
5: and it's 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 cyclical and, you know, as much as I understand, I, I mean, literally the, the absolute horror that Israelis just experience and the need for them to show strength and to respond militarily, the, the cold reality, the thing that I can't shake is that every single bomb that Israel drops in the last few days and in the coming weeks that kills you know, even if it's Hamas and military targets and a few civilians, you know, every family and cousin and friend of one of those people who died has just been radicalized. They've just been radicalized against Israel for the rest of their lives. And the cycle starts over and we're back to zero and everything is at the reset button with, with violence and with hatred. And and, and I, I don't You know, I know that to be true. I don't have a great solution for for how to move from there. But I know that core reality is true. And I know that there's a million kids in Gaza who I believe are, are, you know, redeemable and innocent and capable of forging a new path forward in this conflict. But they're not going to be if they all watch their parents and cousins and friends Get killed in rocket strikes in the next few weeks. That's, I mean, that's just the reality. And as much as I, you know, understand the the want for for this vengeance, because I feel it too in the dark places in my heart, in my mind. I I want to see vengeance for the people I know who have been impacted by what was effectively an old school Jewish pogrom. Like I want that, yeah, but. I also understand the reality that like at some point we have to stop, we have to stop. And, mm-hmm. uh, I'm just hoping that moment comes, but it, it, you know, I don't feel optimistic of it happening anytime soon.
2: This is why I loved your piece. I want to quote you one more time. I'll try to do it for the last time, but there's so much gold here. You write, Israel has already responded with a vengeance and will continue to do so. Their desire for violence is not unlike Hamas's. It's just as much about blood for blood as any legitimate security measure. Israel will have every right to respond with force. Toppling Hamas, a group, by the way, Israel aired and supporting, will now be the objective, and civilian death will be seen as necessary collateral damage. When you say Israel erred in supporting, I mean, do we mean Israel or do we mean the Netanyahu regime? Because it seems like it was done rather deliberately to have a convenient villain on the Palestinian side and support them being in power as opposed to someone more reasonable because it. Consolidated Netanyahu's power, just as right now this destructive conflict will probably make it harder for Netanyahu to be removed for uh, his various accus- uh, accusations of, uh, of of crimes.
5: Yeah. So, so two things. First of all, that paragraph that you just read was one of the things that I think drew some of the most furious response really? to my piece. Yeah. And I, and and I want to be clear and to clarify, I am not. <laughs> equating Hamas and the Israeli government—never I mean, got I think that. They you operate never, never got that a yeah. morally equivalent plane. A lot of people took that away from from that piece of writing, well, which was that's, certainly that's not rubbish. they're haters. I they're agree. Haters. I mean, yeah, yeah. I I agree. It was frustrating to get that. I think it's quite obvious that I view one as a legitimate democratic government and one as a terrorist organization, and I, I wouldn't mean to imply otherwise. Um, my my point about Israel supporting and funding Hamas is, is actually just that. I mean, there was a time when the Israeli government viewed Hamas as a more secular and potentially more moderate partner in solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I mean, in the 1980s and even the 1990s, Hamas was being supported in many ways by the Israeli government it was being funded I mean you know even before this recent outbreak of violence there is kind of a long standing relationship between the Israeli government and Hamas there you know there's a phone number to call you you know Israel wants to bring in a truck of supplies or something like that into Gaza they can connect with the Hamas leaders and organize that and make it happen And for a long time, our understanding of Hamas was they were an extremist organization that wanted Israel, you know, to be wiped off the face of the planet and they want to kill a bunch of Jews and all these things. But also they were very self-interested and they were concerned about the future of Palestine in some ways. This latest attack has kind of upended a lot of people's understanding of Hamas and, and surprised a lot of people. It's part of why they surprised a lot of people, because the response that we're seeing now from Israel was so predictable. It makes one wonder, why would they do this? Like, how how could they have thought that committing this slaughter was going to end well for them or the Palestinian people? Or are they just accepting the fact that, you know, they've whatever, whatever point they're at psychologically is that this is, is worth it. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's, you know, I, in the piece, I cite a fantastic investigative piece from The Intercept about mm-hmm. this. And, you know, th- there are former Israeli government officials who basically say that the Israeli government had a budget and that budget was used often to elevate Hamas because there was a time when they believed that, you know, they were a secular, more liberal kind of version of the extremists that they had to deal with in Palestine and they weren't. But, you know, Avner Cullen, a former Israeli religious affairs official, said that he described Hamas as Israel's creation. Wow. You know, he yeah. he told the Wall Street Journal that in 2009. And so there's a lot of complex history there. And I don't the relationship is not as simple as many people want it to be.
2: And no, you know, I, mean, again, I mean, yeah, you're right. I'm if, not blaming
5: she... the Israeli government. I, and I know you're not Hamas Isaac. at all. No, no. I, I, and I, 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 know I you're just not. mean to say it's much more complicated than people think.
2: No, I've had so many times where I thought if, if Ariel Sharon had lived, there might not have been a need for Hamas. You know, so much progress could have been made. And again, the man Sharon was at the time he went into a coma, not young Sharon, but he evolved so much. If Lee, Yitzhak Rabin had lived, Hamas might never have had to get into power. I, I do want to ask you a couple of questions that might be dumb. How much did Donald Trump announcing Jerusalem as the capital complicate things,
5: oh, that's a good question. Um i I don't know. I don't know. I really don't. I don't have a great
2: answer for that. I, I mean, love that, I that think, that's your answer. I love that that's your yeah, answer. yeah.
5: I mean, I, th- I think it I think it's a really hard thing to gauge in, you know, the the larger context of the conflict. I think a lot of Trump supporters would argue that you know, what the Trump administration brought, their unambiguous support for Israel and their aggressive posture towards Iran could have prevented an attack like this because it it made the U.S. military so unpredictable. And I'm not totally sure I buy that argument either. But, you know, it's it's a I think a reasonable point that a lot of people feel right now is that, Um, you know, Iran feels a little bit emboldened and has probably had some role in either green lighting or potentially organizing this attack. And yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think if I had to draw a line between something like that and what just happened, I would say what Trump definitely did do is he emboldened Netanyahu in the region and he made Netanyahu and the Israeli government feel as if There was, you know, totally unambiguous backing of whatever they wanted to do. And Netanyahu took those cues. And for the last few years, you know, the Israeli government, even when he wasn't fully in power, I think has very much taken a posture that he's been supportive of, which is, you know, expanding the settlements in the West Bank, which I think is an incredibly provocative, not to mention illegal under international law behavior that has been received incredibly negatively from the arab and palestinian world and so you know you you don't want to you you it's hard to say exactly how much of what trump did um you know making truth on the Capitol and also giving this totally uh, unambiguous support for Israel kind of em- emboldened them. But I right. certainly think that the Israeli government capitalized on that relationship and has pushed things to the absolute limit in terms of what they could could do with the, the world watching. And I think that that definitely has created more and more tension and, you know, just lit the match in, in a tinderbox. Um, and regardless of what Hamas has done, I don't think that Israel has helped the situation in the last five or 10 years with the kinds of policies they've taken regarding, you know, settlement expansion
2: in Israel. Isaac Saul, I'm so grateful to you for making the time to stay up late and talk about this. I, and I want everyone to read your piece. Uh, what can you tell us about Tangle News and what's the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with what you're doing?
5: Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much um, for the invitation and the opportunity to speak about it. Uh, Tangle News is a daily politics newsletter where we summarize arguments from the right and the left on the biggest, most divisive topics of the day. You can find us by going to readtangle.com, R E A D tangle.com. And the newsletter is free. You can become a paying member if you want to support us, but you can get the vast majority of our content for free. And, our goal is to get people out of their you know their their bubbles their political bubbles their social media bubbles and it's to add a little bit of nuance to the political reporting that's happening in the united states and abroad right now i think a lot of people are only getting one side of the story and our goal is to give people multiple perspectives on every big issue which is how you know we jumped into this israel-palestine conflict right on we do it every single day on all the big issues happening in america so yeah would love your listeners to join us retangle.com and uh yeah hopefully learn a little bit and get exposed to some views they might not otherwise come across
2: you're very good at it, and I'm a, I'm a happy subscriber. Isaac Saul, thank you so much for joining us. Really, what a pleasure. Come back anytime.
5: Thank you, John. I really appreciate it. I'd love to do it again.
2: Thank you, sir. We're going to hit a quick break. When we come back, it's going to be open phones until midnight on the East Coast, 9 p.m. on the Pacific. Thea will be here in hour number three with another edition of The Minority Report. But in the meantime, stay on hold. We're going to get to all your calls tonight. This is Progress After Dark. I'm John saying This is SiriusXM Progress. You know, um, last week it kind of got lost in the shuffle with all the crazy news, but there was a shooting uh, during homecoming week at Morgan State University in Baltimore, a historically black uh, college and university. And right now in the fallout from the shooting where five people were shot, four of them were students, uh, there are now some rather unconventional ideas being batted around to discuss future safety for the students it has already spun some new controversy it is time for another installment of the minority report with Leah Harper oh,
0: it's my life I has to fight oh, it's my life, I. Hard times like yeah. like Thea right,
2: right? right. right. Harper, all it's right. so good to have you back on the air. I love when you talk to us. Hey, John, how are you? I'm great. I listen to know. I, I we. I'm always begging you to come on and talk and weigh in on topics, and we're always grateful when you do. Because Chris does it all the time, but when you do it, it's special. But
0: and nobody uh, wants that when Chris <laughs> does.
2: You know, I mean. He has needs. <laughs> it's, it's, it's come on. We, we, we had this talk about Chris. Let's encourage him. Right, uh, right, right. We talked so much about mass shootings and this shooting, which happened nine days ago after the coronation ceremony for the Mr. and Miss Morgan State. Uh, it was yet another devastating mass shooting that happened on a college campus. I mean, everyone wants to know how do we keep students safe with gun violence since Washington, D.C. is never going to do it. How have uh, the authorities at Morgan State University responded since the shooting?
0: Yeah, so on Tuesday, it was announced that the university plans to build a wall around most of the northeast Baltimore campus and station security personnel at entrances
2: and exits. They're going to build a wall around the campus in Baltimore.
0: Correct. Correct. The wall would extend uh, existing barriers by 8,000 feet um, to encircle 90% of the campus and effectively eliminate unfettered access.
2: Right. I mean, this is a a university like, uh, like Columbia where it it is its own campus but it's in a city and anybody can just walk right through it. I understand students were like walking from the auditorium to the student center where the coronation ball was going to be held when when all this happened. Um mm-hmm. would would a wall like this have have kept the shooter out?
0: Um I mean, I I really don't think so. Um Yeah. <laughs>
2: I don't think so either. I mean, I mean, (laughs) but I guess I guess they're going to build. I'm trying to picture this in my head. Thea, I need you to flesh Mm -hmm. it out for me. They're going to build a wall around the entire campus, some kind of barrier or fencing, and then have a few entrances with, I guess, guards at every one checking IDs. It seems like uh, uh, I mean, I I applaud their efforts to keep the students safe. I'm not sure how sustainable this is going to be.
0: Yeah, I'm not really sure either. And they did mention, the university claims that they were already going to uh, have significant security upgrades underway before the shooting. Um, but they never said that, you know, ex- exactly it was, gonna, it was going to be a wall. Um, but right. yeah, but in addition to the wall there, there um other potential upgrades include installing more metal detectors in the campus sure. building. Uh, exploring weapon, weapon detection technology, and increasing police patrols, and building additional security guard booths.
2: Now, has there been any arrests in this? Do the do the cops know who did this, or or whether it was one person, or or even more than one person?
0: So there haven't been any arrests yet, but Baltimore Police have released surveillance images of. A person of interest, persons of interest, and ask the public for helping identify them.
2: I, I know that four students were shot, but did they think that this was a, a a shooting? Were they targeting students? Was this like a a lunatic, or was this more like violence between a couple of different parties, and the students just got in the way?
0: Yeah, it, it was. It was definitely. Um, it, it stemmed from a dispute between between some people it wasn't okay. like those people the people that were injured they were not targets
2: wow i mean you know it's it's funny cuz i went to nyu and mm-hmm. you know i i grew up go i mean i went to a college campus that's just right in the middle of new york city and mm-hmm. for us it was like yeah you 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 walk by drug dealers every day on your way to class and it was just a funny thing and not a lot of violence but occasionally sure i mean everyone gets mugged now and then but it's just it's almost unthinkable to me to imagine like an urban university having to grapple with, with things like this. I mean, well, I mean, has this happened before at Morgan state? Is there, does the school have a history? Yes. Thing there,
0: the there was um, a homecoming back in 2022, a young man was shot uh, at an after party. But hmm. I think what's important to mention is that unfortunately where there are spaces for Black people to pro- to progress it's often met with the violence. Yeah. Like look at the black, uh, black Wall Street in Tulsa is an example of that. And yeah. what we're seeing today at HBCUs is another example of that. Uh, it was just like oh, almost two months ago, uh, Edward Waters University at HBCU in Jacksonville uh, they diverted a, a man from campus who fatally shot three people at a nearby Dollar General uh, store minutes later, and um, and it was just also just the other day that there was a shooting at Bowie State, another HBCU in Maryland. So, I I, I really think, I really think it's unfortunate that it has has come to this where the uni- university feels like. building a wall is the best solution for the safety of their students i Uh, just wish there were better um gun laws put in place
2: that's it to prevent these shootings and and ending the drug war too you know i mean it's just it's just baltimore has suffered so much and you think about poor communities are systemically deliberately underfunded So Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you have a great college campus in the middle of a a city that struggles economically like Baltimore. I I get it. You can't insulate this corner of academia from all the poverty and the things that are symptoms of poverty that surround it. It just seems like I understand the need to build a wall, why they'd want to do it. But it's it's not going to solve the actual societal problems that led to this gunfight and and you know it's not going to stop the violence from happening on the other side of the wall
0: i agree with you 100 percent. and also another thing is is that hbcus i I just did uh my last theoretically speaking episode was on hbcus and the importance of hbcus and one thing i touched on is that they're extremely underfunded and this cost for all of these uh, security measures at Morgan State would cost about 22 million dollars. Now, mm. I I really believe this this money could be going elsewhere, you know, at the university. But like I said, I just really wish that there were better there were gun laws in place to prevent these situations from happening.
2: You know, I have to tell you, you are you are such a terrific producer. I love your specials. I think you're a great uh, host as well, Thea. I mean, theoretically speaking, you have really put together such a gorgeous body of work and um, our listeners appreciate it. People always tell me all the time how much they love your specials. Tell us a bit about what we're going to hear tomorrow night.
0: Yes. So tomorrow night, I'm very excited for this one. Um, We're focusing on breast cancer awareness. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. this is an issue that impacts so many people and so i really thought it was important to raise awareness on this on this health issue and so i'm tomorrow I'll be, you'll hear me speaking with uh dr babalola janandu he is a certified OBGYN and we really get into you know what are the symptoms how can we lower our risk also the importance of screenings Um, When, how early should we be screening? And then I also speak with journalist Nayaba Arinde. She is, she also, she's a breast cancer survivor and she started an organization called Square Circles that helps uh, women uh, going, dealing with breast cancer and also breast cancer survivors.
2: That's amazing. This will be tomorrow night right after our Ken Burns special, right?
0: Yes, that is right.
2: Oh man, Thea, thank you so much. Um, What is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with all of your production?
0: Yes, you guys can follow me. I am Thea Harper on the socials.
2: You are the best. I can't wait for tomorrow. And uh, thank you so much. You have just put together such a great body of work with these specials you've done. And what you've really done is make me and Chris look better than we deserve to look. And I want to thank (laughs) you for that.
0: I'm so appreciative to you guys. So Thank you guys.
2: No, thank you. Thea. You're the best, um, and uh, my best wishes for Morgan State University. I hope that I hope that uh, the world finds a way to make there be less violence, so colleges don't have to make choices like spending money on building safety walls surrounding a campus. It just seems insane. Can't wait for theoretically speaking tomorrow night. Thank you so much, guys.
1: Thank you.